Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have a really great guest, uh, Robert M. Sapolsky. Uh, he's the author of several works of nonfiction, including a primate's memoir, The Trouble with Testosterone, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. His most recent book, Behave, uh, was a New York Times bestseller, named Best Book of the Year by Washington Post and Wall Street Journal. Uh, he's a professor of biology and neurology at Stanford University, uh, also a recipient of a MacArthur Foundation Genius Grant, and uh, him and his wife live in San Francisco. We're going to talk about another one of his books, Determined, A Science of Life Without Free Will. So, Robert, thanks for coming. How are you doing? Okay. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Well, if you would, tell me a bit about your background, how you got into this area of, I don't know, what did you call it? I guess neuroscience slash psychology slash, you know, other areas. But, you know, again, tell me your background and, and what led you in the direction you're currently in. Yeah. Well, let's see. I've kind of had two academic careers going in parallel throughout in that my original bent was to be a primatologist. I decided when I was a kid in the Museum of Natural History up in Manhattan that I was going to go live with wild primates someday and sort of was on my way to becoming that. And then uh, freshman year of college, I, I stumbled into neurons and neuroscience. So ever since I've been sort of going between the two and I've spent my decades alternating between running a neurobiology research lab that does cellular stuff and molecular stuff. And then every summer for 33 years, picking up and going and living with a troop of baboons in the Serengeti in East Africa. So I've been kind of straddling the two fields uh, forever. And I guess the common theme throughout um, has been one of stress. I, you know, I officially count as a stress physiologist. Um, and my lab work forever was trying to understand what stress does to the brain. And like, if you want to turn 40 years of work into a sentence, it's not good. It does bad things to your brain. But trying to understand sort of the, the nuts and bolts about how stress screws up your memory and makes you more prone towards depression and anxiety and makes you sort of impulsive with bad judgment and less empathic and all of that. And what I was doing with the baboons all those years, uh, these are completely wild animals and sort of returning to the same ones year after year, is asking who gets the stress-related diseases. These are social primates who spend an absurd amount of their time making each other socially miserable in terms of competition and harassment and pettiness and coalitions and backstabbing, all of that. And like, what does your blood pressure, your levels of stress hormones, et cetera, if you were one of these baboons, what does it have to do with your dominance rank and the hierarchy? What does it have to do with your patterns of social affiliation? How often? 
Are you grooming with someone, sitting with someone? What does it have to do with your personality? And if things like friendship and personality sound like silly terms for like another primate species, they're not in the slightest. So I've spent forever bouncing between the two. And in the more recent decade, as my knees have gotten creakier, I've switched more and more towards writing about these topics. So yeah, with the baboons, I, I'm pretty sure I saw an article on this. Uh, I guess the ones that are lower status have a lot more stress because they're constantly being harassed. But what about the ones that are high status? I mean, that are doing the harassing. It it seems like that would induce a stress in them, maybe a different kind. Maybe they're more angry instead of fearful. Uh, maybe their stress pattern is still significant, but just different from the ones that are constantly harassed. What did you really? see? Um, this is... Well, that's about 20 years of what I found out in one very concise paragraph. That's that's exactly what you see. In general, if you're a low-ranking baboon, life is surely miserable. They live out in savannah, these big troops of 50 to 100 animals. And if you're low-ranking, anyone who's higher-ranking who's in a bad mood can take it out on you. You stumble onto some like great food and anybody can come and rip you off. You're in a bad, depressed mood and you're much less likely to get groomed than anyone else. And as such, you're like the textbook example of what makes stress psychologically stressful, lack of control, lack of predictability, lack of outlets. So you look at them and some of what I found out is relative to dominant guys, they have higher levels of stress hormones, the system is less responsive, their immune systems don't work as well, they're prone towards high blood pressure, blah, blah, all sorts of bad stuff. But then you asked about the dominant guys, and in general, the dominant guys had better, healthier, stress-related physiology because they're the ones who were giving out ulcers rather than getting them, except for two circumstances, which is exactly what you allude to. This is what the world looks like, what I've been describing, when the dominance hierarchy is stable. And, you know, number three in the hierarchy defeats number four 95% of the time. And number three loses to number two 95% of the time, this whole status quo thing. And it's under those circumstances that the high-ranking individuals are doing just fine. Every now and then, though, Somebody critical gets injured, is picked off by hyenas, who knows what. And the whole hierarchy spends the next three months like completely upending. Instead of a logical thing, you lose number two and number three becomes number two and four becomes number three. Instead, it hits fault lines in the whole social system and you've got months of rank instability. And in those circumstances, the revolution is all occurring up in the upper ranks at the higher ranking guys. And all of the biological, physiological health advantages of being a high-ranking male go out the window at that time. Like, basically, you don't want to be in the palace when the, the peasants are, like, storming the gates and stuff. That's not a particularly restful time. The other circumstance is, you know, you're sitting on top of the hierarchy. You're the alpha male, for example. And you got all these psychological advantages, control, predictability, outlets, whatever. People groom you. People get out of your way. You can eat whatever you want. You have sex, blah, blah, all of that. So that should be the profile on the average for a nice unstressed profile. But then the exceptions you see are the guys who were being idiots, as high-ranking males who are being impulsive and insecure. If you are like an alpha male baboon and you're doing things right, 
you've gone a year without a fight with anyone because all you have to do is look at somebody and that should settle the whole thing. All you have to do is look as if you're about to get up and settle this matter and with your teeth and that takes care of everything. You're getting by on sheer psychological intimidation. And if instead you're one of those rare alphas whose every provocation demands a fight and every, like, you're totally insecure in the position, if you need to use it, you're in the process of losing it. These are the guys who don't last long. And during their alphaship, their physiology is as miserable as the lowest ranking guy in the group because even they've got the social circumstances, the social privilege, the socioeconomic status equivalent in baboons of having a relatively low stress life, they have the personalities that don't allow them to benefit from that. What about, well, I guess the trauma that's built up over time. So if I'm a low ranking male in the baboon, you know, group, and it's been like that for a year, am I locked in? Is my physiology forever going to be like this? Even if somehow I advance later on? Or does it change and I, I become better and okay if I rise up through the ranks somehow? Great. That's part of what makes the male baboon so interesting. You take all these social primates and a rule of thumb is one of the sexes spends their whole life in the same troop. And if they have a dominant system, they basically inherit their rank. And it's this really static, stable system. And in contrast, the other sex is the one who gets all antsy at puberty and picks up and leaves their whole troop and joins another troop and fights their way up the hierarchy and afterward drops down in the old age. And it just happens in baboons. It's the males who are the ones who pick up and leave. Among chimps, it's the females who do. So in a baboon troop, the females all have inherited their ranks from their mothers. See this amazing stuff. Like I remember 25 years ago, in this one week it happened, the highest ranking female and one of the lowest ranking ones both gave birth to kids in the same week. And like you see, every developmental landmark was faster on the high ranking kid because mom had better nutrition from the first moment of pregnancy, all of that. So everything was developing faster. But then you saw when they were about two weeks old, the low ranking kid spots the high ranking kid. Like for the first time, oh my God, somebody else my size and sort of wobbles over to say hello. And when this low ranking kid was about three feet away, her mother grabs her by the tail and drags her back. And she had just gotten her first lesson in, this is what your rank is about. You don't go up to somebody like that. The only time you're going to be interacting with them is if they're coming by in a bad mood and you're hoping they don't take it out on you and you're trying not to make eye contact. And the amazing thing is they're like 20-year-old old ladies now and they still have the dominance asymmetry they were learning in their first month of life. So with the females, it's exactly the scenario that you say, if you've gotten the lousy luck and you're born into a low-ranking lineage, you're going to be low-ranking your whole life, and you're going to be paying the physiological consequences of that your whole life. Fortunately, as a buffer, at least you're surrounded by your relatives, and that is like a huge social support is the best thing you could do to decrease stress. Meanwhile, you got the males and they show up in adolescence and they're jerky little teenagers and they're getting into fights and they're slowly learning how to navigate the hierarchy. So you follow these guys as they rise up the hierarchy and they reach their peak years and then you see them decline to old age and the physiology follows the rank changes. So this year's 
like twerpy terrorized subordinate like number nine of a high-ranking hierarchy gangly kid who's got stress hormones coming out of his ears you come back four years later and he's now like number three in the hierarchy and is muscled and in his prime and he's the one who's terrifying the uh the adolescents now and then you come back five years after that and he's this old man with no teeth anymore who's being like the kids the kids harassing kind of thing so sure. The male world is much more dynamic, which is what makes it interesting. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now back to the show. no idea if this relates at all but is there anything that can happen like let's say there's a huge rainstorm which probably wouldn't happen in savannah but uh, any primates that live let's say in a very rainy area and the reason why i ask is this so so i have a bunch of dogs like we talked about before in the interview um i've noticed if we bathe them all it seems to reset their hierarchy and they have to reestablish it maybe literally the the appropriate smells are washed off of them so i wondered if in the you know any primates that are in a rainy area or an area with mud or whatever it may be. Are there times where something natural happens that upsets the water? Not a, not exactly that, but there's conceptually an equivalent. Some primate species are what you would call fusion fission species. They live in a large group, but they split up into small groups every morning and they return in the evening and merge back together or they'll split up for a couple of days or one group will go 10 miles away for a few weeks because the food may be better there or whatever. And with these fusion fusion species, when they come back together at the end of the day or at the end of the week, they got to recheck all the hierarchical stuff. They got to make sure this guy is still subordinating himself to me. They've got to make sure this other guy is still scary that something didn't happen in the last week. So they spend their evenings reaffirming exactly their hierarchy. So that's, it's the same exact principle. And you see this with wolves. Uh, wolves hunt as individuals. They hunt little stuff like rabbits, but they scavenge in a pack on like large dead elk and things like that. Um, so they spend part of the year, a lot of the time, solitary. And when they come back together, they got to go through the same thing. Everybody has to smell each other's crotch and all that sort of stuff and spray each other with their pheromones. And it's exactly that. If you spend a while away from each other, you got to kind of check in and see if anything interesting has happened worth gossiping about. Huh. Okay. And you mentioned the males, the alphas that are I guess I would say better leaders because they're not constantly paranoid about other people taking over. Uh, they tend to have a better stress profile. What about the whole, I don't know what you call a bunch of baboons, yeah, pack, I guess. With good leaders, is there less stress overall in the pack or is there more stress versus like paranoid bad leaders? Well, being a good professor, obviously my answer is yes and no. Um, for starters, the concept of a leader 
is totally irrelevant to male baboons. People started studying them out in the 60s, and male primate holocysts fell in love with them because they seemed to be like these highly aggressive, male-dominated, hierarchical beasts, and just like us in the savannah back when. And all of these models emerged about the alpha male being in charge of the troop and making the decisions and keeping the kids in line and changing the light bulbs and all of that. And it took a long time for enough research to show that's a total myth. There's nothing a high-ranking male baboon, there's nothing a male baboon, there's nothing a baboon ever does that's not purely driven out of self-interest. And they're not leading the troop to like better foraging crowns. They're not standing up to lions to defend the the poor and weak. They are, you know, purely opportunistic. These are not nice altruistic animals. So you don't get leadership in that sense. And when you look at anything resembling leadership, say for example, in the morning they're all coming down from their trees and they're about to wander in the savannah and they can go all these different directions. And who decides what direction they're going to go? Not the alpha male, because he showed up six years ago and he still hasn't learned what the trees are or four valleys from here. It's the old females, the matriarchs who are 20 years old, and they're the ones who lead in the morning. So that's the closest thing to leadership. But like in a broader sense of your question, forget different types of alpha male leadership, but different types of group culture. Another one of those words, oh my God, if you ever said the word culture with respect to monkeys, like back when they'd immediately drive you out of the business, it's one of the like trendiest words in the field now because you have different social temperaments of different groups, how often they fight, how often they groom, they, you know, a whole bunch of things like that. And what I was finally able to do about 25 years into the work was have enough different troops under enough different historical circumstances under study to be able to see, wow, for this half decade, this was a much nicer troop to be in than in the decade before that. Here's the reasons why, blah, blah, long stories, all of that. Or this troop has become really aggressive and displacing aggression hostile ever since like their territory shrank. And what you see is like perfectly logical. If you're going to be a low-ranking baboon, you want to be as healthy as possible. Pick a troop that's going through a period where folks are relatively nice to each other. So there's massive cultural differences in terms of like everyday life, but also how much your body is being subjected to stress, more importantly, how much your psyche is and what your long-term consequences are. So that's that's a totally like right on the button question. Some baboon troops you really wouldn't want to transfer into, but others are much better. So the alphas aren't necessarily leading, but different kinds of alpha personalities, I would guess, set the tone for how the whole troop is going to interrelate. So is there, exactly. are there more successful personalities? I would guess, again, the same ones that aren't paranoid and constantly fighting, their troop can at least relax somewhat. And, and like you said, the matriarchs take over some part of the leadership. Um, you know, other ones. Okay. So that's what happens, right? The, the ones that, that they influence, they don't lead, but at least they influence by being what they are. Yeah. 
And being one of those insecure alphas, you're not as important. You don't know what's going on socially. The old females do. But nonetheless, you can make life miserable for anyone you want in there. And when you have these insecure, anxious alphas, not only are they not ignoring provocations and getting into fights, not only are they starting fights that they really shouldn't, but they're dumping on everybody's lower ranking whenever they're stressed. They're displacing the majority of baboon aggression is somebody taking out their frazzled state on an innocent bystander. So you get one of these alphas who doesn't do that, not because he like believes in you know communal love or some such thing, but his personality is such that he's not easily provoked. He's got good emotional regulation. He's got impulse control, all that sort of thing. So he's not spending half the day raining terror on innocent bystanders. So that makes for a much nicer life for everybody else. And you see changes in everybody else's behavior then. And one of the rules you see is you get one of these like over-the-top frantic alphas who's just making everyone miserable and everyone who like even remotely crosses him, he's in a fight with them. At some point, he's going to get a major injury. At some point, he's going to go septic. At some point, he's going to be limping around and the hyenas get him. Or at some point, some coalition forms and takes him down. Those are the guys who don't last long aggression and muscle and all of that has everything to do with attaining high rank in this species, but social intelligence and self-control has everything to do with maintaining it. And when you're one of the ones who's good at, like those social intelligence skills, everybody's doing better. Not because you're an enlightened leader, but because you figured out how to spend all day long having females groom you instead of all day long, like having fights with people. Yeah. So I would guess that maybe parenting plays a role or a previous rank. So if a baboon becomes an alpha and they were really low ranking in their previous group, maybe they're more likely to be paranoid. Maybe if they were high ranking, their mother was high ranking in the previous group and they go to a new group, they'll be less yeah. likely to be aggressive. Is there a correlation? Exactly. And you get like these juveniles who show up and, you know, most of them like lurk in the periphery for a year and like nobody grooms them. And when I dart on the nest the time and covered in parasites and they're and every now and then you get this kid show up who's like this house on fire and if he does it right he's way up in the hierarchy if he does it wrong he's getting his head handed to him on a regular basis but wow maybe he had a high-ranking mother this is something that frustrates me like crazy simply because male baboons like some guy shows up as an adolescent one day who's destined to be the most interesting baboon in history for me. And he could have grown up in a troop 60 miles away. I'm never going to know who his mother was. I'm never going to know what her rank was. I'm never going to know if he like, you know, was getting piano lessons as a kid and having lots of books and game nights or an abusive household. Or I can never know. That's something I would love to know because Everything we know about the neurobiology and psychobiology of child development says that's where some of these differences are coming from. But I could never find that out with them. Could you tag all the groups of different, all the individuals of different groups and then watch how they disperse and reform and reconstitute? Yeah, I was able to get three troops, three adjacent troops, and that would certainly help. Two of the troops I got to know well, one 
was just sort of this peripheral feeder group that like I didn't really understand. So someone would show up from one of the two groups that I understood. I would know something about their background, but someone from the third troop, I really wouldn't have a clue. I'd like dimly remember, oh, I sort of recognize this guy from when he was a kid or whatever. But, and then you get guys who show up from like Tanzania or something. This was in Kenya, like 40 miles through the border. And some guy shows up and who knows where he came from. So you never get a sense of that. But yes, I, I tagged the animals after a surprisingly short amount of time, you don't need to even really look at the tags, the ear tags with the numbers. You you know who's who, but I could only do it to a certain extent. You know, my dream would have been to have like every baboon in the Serengeti tagged and all of them filling out like personal opinion questionnaires and dental casts and who knows what else. But yeah, it's like find out, finite what you can do. How different was the behavior of the different troops? Were some like radically different or were there all behaviors, uh, maybe, you know, a couple different kinds, but closely related? What was interesting is like you wouldn't see, okay, culturally very contrasting troops. And I had two of them that were quite different. And the one that was most atypical had been a typical troop a decade before, before something very unique happened. And you don't see cultural invention in the sense of, whoa, here's a troop that has behaviors you don't see in other baboon troops. No one's ever seen this. All they do is shift the frequency, the likelihood of behaviors. And what turns out to be most meaningful is the likelihood that if you're sitting there minding your own business and somebody else is in a bad mood, that you're going to wind up being stressed because of it. That's sort of the most important variable. And that could vary dramatically. Big surprise, one of the most destabilizing things for a baboon troop is humans nearby and what that winds up meaning for them. So that was a variable that had a tremendous impact over the decades there. But it's not like they go out and suddenly invent microwaves or pair bonding or some such thing. They just shift the the profile, the ratios of the normal sets of behaviors. So it's subtler unless you're some like low-ranking female who isn't getting beat up on as regularly by everybody else. Did you have a rank or were you outside the troops, like the ones you hung out with year after year? What, how did they treat you and how did it change? I was something. I certainly was not a fly on the wall. I mean, they kind of, they were certainly aware of me, but I had to spend huge amounts of time habituating them so that they like wouldn't pay attention to me. I'd become innocuous, although, you know, I could only get within a certain proximity to them. The problem was like 19 out of 20 days, I'd be just hanging out with them 10 hours a day and just following them around and being innocuous. And then every now and then, like my walking stick wouldn't turn out to be a blowgun and I would take somebody down and do a day's testing on him. So I was clearly a primate to them, but of a very like undefined sort. The only signal I ever got along those lines and there's this facial expression that baboons give if they're about to be trounced by somebody and they know it and they're trying to solicit somebody else to come in and help them and 
big surprise that usually doesn't work. Usually <laughs> you don't want to side with the guy on the losing side. So this one day, this kid was about to get pummeled by this middle ranking guy and it was totally clear from 100 yards away. So he makes this facial expression to one of his peers who ignores him and he makes this facial expression to somebody else and they ignore him. And like the big guy is getting closer and closer. And finally, he looks at me and he gives me the facial expression. Wow. Like, could I get in my Jeep and run over the guy or something? But like in, in honor of my like primatologist objectivity, hands off, <laughs> like sacred vow or whatever, I had to pretend I didn't understand what he was saying. But that was about it over the course of thousands of hours. But I was there. They definitely knew it. It's interesting also, you know, you get you get your intro psych anywhere along the way and you get your Jean Piaget sort of developmental cognitive stages. And at what stage do kids first realize that just because they don't see anything anymore, that doesn't mean it stopped existing and all sorts of cognitive sophistication. And you get different stages of sort of Piagetian sophistication depending on what species you're looking at. And baboons are smart. But there's all sorts of stuff they weren't smart enough to do. So you would see all these things like if I was hidden, I stopped existing, even though I would come out and a quarter second later from behind that bush and they would react to me as if I was exactly as so like, oh, they didn't have object permanence. Or you're trying to dart somebody and he's skittish and he's like 25 yards away and you can't get near him and he keeps moving away and it's totally frustrating. But if there's like a stream in between you and him, I mean like a stream that's like three inches deep and six inches wide, somehow in his mind, he would do this distortive thing. There's a boundary on the other side of the stream. And in some psychological sense, I was a longer distance away from him. So I could get much closer if there was like some big log between the two of us. Or hmm. So you see, you know, they're smart. They're not chimps. They're not us. So you could certainly take advantage of that. But all of that was within the context that I was not an honorary baboon, but I was not like a treaty. I was I was something somewhere in between. Well, what, did your presence destabilize the insecure alphas? Or insecure ones? Did you notice that? You'd have to work very hard. You'd, you'd learn who was skittish. You'd be super aware of where mothers and their young kids were so you didn't accidentally get between them. You know, you learn not to run across a, a big LA freeway if you were that culture and like, or you learn how to do it safely. You learn like how to walk around among baboons and not do like stupid disastrous things that will get them crazed or get you mauled or something. So yeah, you definitely need to be aware of it. What would, what would always be a little bit amusing is I would go away for my nine months and then come back the next year and like there's my main troop and drive up there and, you know, everybody's there and, oh, it's like me again. I've showed up again, whatever. And there would have been two or three adolescent males who had transferred in over the course of the year while I was away. And you could see they suddenly freak out like this human creature, what's he doing? Like right near here and getting out of his vehicle. And then they would, you see them freak out because... Is nobody else noticing there's something weird about this? So you could immediately see the ones who were not yet habituated. But, you know, over the course of the season, they would be. But, yeah, I had to be very conscious of, like, my impact on these animals. I would only dart somebody if nobody else was around. Nobody can see. 
he wasn't uh, in like very controlled circumstances. Huh. Interesting. Last question for now. Have you spoken to Jane Goodall or other people that have spent a lot of time in the field? It doesn't have to be with baboons, but chimps or other creatures. Um, have you compared notes? Is there anything interesting that you've told them that helped them or they told you vice versa? Is there a, like a group of people that you know, hang out with, with primates that share this knowledge? Well, you, you grow up in this field and if you're remotely my age, plus or minus in generation, you grew up worshiping Jane Goodall and her chimps and Deanne Fossey and her gorillas and Ruruti Galdakos and her orangutans. These were the, the, the three matriarchs who like invented the fields, basically. And you grew up in awe of them. And I met Galdakos once and seemed like a nice person. That was about it. And I met Deanne Fossey once and she was one of the most terrifying people I've ever met in my life. Um, yeah. And I met Goodall once and I don't think the Dalai Lama could give off more of a glow of like serenity and internal calm. I was like, I'm not being hyperbolic here, but like shaking her hand and see, I was like shaken by her stillness. And because she's just spent about 60 years being very still around wild animals and very still but activated about her wild animals being endangered and very still, but activated about the whole planet being endangered. But so like, I kind of worship her. Primatologists, the ones themselves, you know, you get together like a contemporary bunch and they're petty and backstabbing and coalitional and they all have terrible social skills because why else are you going to go live in a tent somewhere with a bunch of monkeys? And so it's, it's your usual like bunch of socially complex primates that's funny you're all a bunch of baboons you guys start acting better yeah really well very cool i would have to have multiple multiple interviews with you to uh to get through all your material but i think it's great that we did a deep dive into the baboon observations so i want to thank you for that and thank you for coming and you know, perhaps we'll have you back again if you're willing but um where can people find out more about your work particularly the baboons and the best to just go to amazon or where, where should they go yeah, the, the baboon stuff is sort of summarized for the non-scientist jargon-free, a book of mine called A Primate's Memoir, which was sort of my first 25 years with the baboons. Other of my books are about stress and health, again, written for non-scientists, uh, sort of the, the biological basis of behavior. But so the baboon ones are in A Primate's Memoir. Um, I guess maybe one final point coming through all this dominance and competition and hierarchy and what's good for you if you're a baboon. If you're a baboon or human and you want to have like a healthy, unstressed profile of how your body's working and you got a choice in the matter between being high ranking or having a lot of social support and affiliation, choose the latter every time. That's absolutely clear whether you're a baboon or a corporate human. Be the, uh, the non-paranoid relaxed leader or not leader, but, but head of the whole thing instead of the paranoid, crazy one, you're doing yeah. yourself a disservice and you'll be taken out at some point. sounds like so. Yeah. And when times are bad, have somebody to groom you or even better, have somebody to groom. That's, that's exactly the prescription. Well, very good, Robert. It's been a great interview. Thank you so much for coming. I appreciate it. Same. Thanks for having me on. This was fun. If you like this podcast, 
please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.